Atheist Nomads episode 359. Trans service members with Alice Ashton. The podcast you're about to listen to includes cursing and talking about hoo-haws. Please be advised. Welcome to another episode of Atheist Nomads. I am Dustin, and in a little bit I'll be joined by Alice Ashton. And we're going to talk about her story and about the current situation for trans service members. And she's a soon-to-be-retired member of the U.S. Navy and a trans woman. Uh, But before we get to that, we still need to talk about the the protests and general discontent in the country right now. And I have to say, I'm impressed at how effective these protests have been at getting their message out there. It really seems like people are you know, not the, the rabid far right. You know, they're a bunch of white supremacists. So it's not, you're not going to get through to them, but to the, you're pretty run of the mill, moderate white American is getting their eyes open. Now, I'd say last week it was definitely liberals were, and now it's moving into the moderates and more the the independents and even starting to move into the more reasonable Republicans. So that is that is encouraging to see. And if we if we think about it, you know, the 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 one of the big messages and I'm someone who honestly would not have believed that this is a reasonable viewpoint two weeks ago. Uh, the defund the police and abolish the police sentiments. Those seemed ridiculous to me when I first heard them. But I've read enough about them and I've heard enough about them that I get it. And this is coming from somebody who, yeah, I spent my childhood praying for usually three people. Bill Nye, the science guy, that he would see the light and become a creationist. And my stepbrothers. My oldest stepbrother, who's 17 years older than me, uh, was a police officer in Southern Oregon, who has actually now retired. And my other stepbrother, who is 16 years older than me, uh, is a Green Beret, who has also now retired. And... Growing up hearing stories from a police officer about his work as a police officer definitely started me off on being very, and the stories about dangers to police officers, um, really started me off on the, the mindset of trust the police, they're the good guys out there protecting everyone else from the bad guys. As I you know, grew up and I have lived a few places and seen a few things, I have uh, started shifting that perception. And, you know, I would definitely say that by Ferguson, I definitely thought the police needed major systemic reform. And I'm now starting to get the picture of why that's not enough. And I, I think it's worth at this point taking a look back at where the modern 
police force in the U.S. came from. The earliest analogs would be runaway slave patrols in the South, as well as in the North. In the South, they were rounding up slaves to get them right back onto the plantation, and in the North, they were rounding up runaway slaves to ship them back to the South so they could get handed over to those other patrols who could turn them over to their masters. And after the Civil War, those same runaway slave patrols kept at it. You know, the, the generations changed, but the general purpose didn't. Uh, instead of keeping slaves on the plantations, it was their, their target was to enforce segregation. It wasn't necessarily about encouraging lawful activity. They often took part in lynchings and burning down black communities and black churches and black neighborhoods. This was specifically about maintaining segregation and keeping black people down, keeping them from getting power. In the Wild West, it was, it was different. Uh, now, I'm sure there was lots of racism in the Wild West, but for the most part, the law enforcement there was focused on keeping trains from getting robbed, keeping banks from getting robbed, and fighting cattle wrestlers. Those are very different and extreme cases compared to what we deal with now. And the justice that was generally doled out back then was getting hung at high noon. Then we get into the turn of the 20th century. And there's the labor movement. And police being used as, uh, generally as thugs to fight and break up the unions and get people back to work in the factories. Um, one very notable case of this where the lines between company security and police were kind of blurry was the riots in Everett, Washington that burned the company town to the ground. Unionists from across the Puget Sound gathered and engaged in a fight with, with, uh, private security and police that left dozens, if not hundreds, I don't remember the exact details, dead. A lot died before they even got off the, the ferries. And the riots that ensued burned down the mills and the town. Everything had to be rebuilt from the ground up. Then you get to the bootleggers. And the police had to shift gears to fast cars and watching the highways because somebody going really fast on the highway is probably running some moonshine. Got to stop that. So then you start getting into a lot more traffic enforcement as a way to find crime. And while you're doing a traffic stop, and of course you actually have to stop the person, not just write down their number and mail them a ticket. It's you got to get that person pulled over so you can get a, a good look at the car and find evidence of something worse. That segued nicely into the war on drugs 
which was inherently in the way it was initially created, very racist with the initial prohibitions being on marijuana in the Southwest to try to punish Hispanics for being Hispanic. And then moving up into the fifties and sixties and into the seventies, it was all about hippies, war protesters, and black people who are not likely to vote for Nixon and try and get them felonies so they can't vote. Which is another thing. Drug possession, making it so you can't vote. Why? Why should getting caught with, I don't even care how much pot or some ecstasy at a party, why should that deprive you of your right to vote? That is absurd. And then you move on past that, and we've got the organized crime created by Prohibition and the War on Drugs and organized crime getting access to better black market supply chains and better weapons needing the cops to be better armed so they can keep up with the criminals. And then with the loss of, with the expiration of the federal assault weapons ban, the average citizen got to get assault weapons, which meant the police definitely needed assault weapons because now everybody's got them. And of course the criminals had much easier access once average civilians got better access. And so the police needed to be better armed than the civilians and the criminals. And the criminals need to be better armed than the police. Which means the civilians want to be better armed. Which means the police need to be better armed. Until you get to a case where there isn't much distinction between the police and the military. Which is a very bad place to be in. Then you add into it budget cuts. And fines being used to patch holes in city and county budgets. And then quotas being set up to get a certain number of of arrests and a certain number of traffic citations. Uh, Quotas are absolutely bullshit. (laughs) Absolutely bullshit. The reason to give someone a ticket is because they're being dangerous on the road. Not because you need to get enough tickets to pay your salary. That is a fucked up system if there ever was one. And with the militarization of the police, it wasn't just increasing armaments. It was the war on terror came in too. And that brought in these better programs for neocons to get their defense contractor buddies more business by hooking up better guns and better weaponry for the local police so they could take on drug cartels and terrorist groups. Which, if you think a local police department should be taking care of drug cartels and terrorist groups, you are fucking insane. 
The only difference between the mafia and a cartel is the color of the skin of the people running it. The Italian mob, the Russian mob, and the Colombian cartels are not that different. They move black market merchandise from suppliers to buyers. The way to get rid of that is to eliminate the black market by creating a regulated market, or at least a gray market, so that you don't have criminals having complete a complete monopoly on the drugs or whatever else it is that people are wanting to get. So then that brings us to police unions, which have been, you know, generally speaking, unions are good for society. Uh, labor unions in, in factories have resulted in much better working conditions. Uh, teachers unions are the only things that are protecting schools from getting their budgets cut by state governments that are trying to figure out how to keep paying for things without taxing their citizens and, and also how to get taxes in when you've got an economy that keeps getting thinner and thinner and thinner. And the police unions came up at the same time and started off as a good way to protect the police. And they have become horribly corrupt systems to protect police from accountability. And I'm not saying that police shouldn't be able to unionize. What I am saying is it is ridiculous if a police union is countermanding orders from the chief and the mayor and the governor, as we saw in New York. And it is ridiculous if the police union is keeping the elected people who are accountable to the people from enforcing personnel decisions to deal with cops who are being brutal and who are assaulting and murdering civilians. What I'm trying to say here is I get it. It's not a couple of bad apples. If it was a couple of bad apples, Minneapolis would have been fixed because they put in a black chief. They put body cams on everybody. They increased reporting requirements. They put in on all these reforms that people have been asking for for quite a few years. Uh, Portland, Oregon has been trying to do the same. They have put in a black police chief, a woman as a police chief. They've done all the same things to try to take their horrible, ugly, racist machine and try to turn it into something that it isn't. Well, if the orchard is, inv is infested with parasites, because we're sticking with the bad apple analogy. If you think you've got a couple bad apples, you might want to check for parasites. And when you find your orchard is infested, yeah, you can try a little bit of cleanup. 
And if that doesn't work, you need to burn the fucking thing down and start over. I think we're there. There are a lot of good proposals getting talked about that would create new systems that could handle these things better. Police have been not just fighting violent crime, but having to investigate uh, cybercrime and corporate espionage. They've been having to deal with a lot of property crime. They've been having to deal with domestic violence and mental health issues because we shut down the asylums and didn't replace them. We've got a VA system that can't get properly funded to take care of the people that are getting fucked up in our endless wars. And yeah, if if we aren't going to take care of them sufficiently, then who's going to? It's the police. We have growing homelessness problems. And well, if we aren't going to take care of the homelessness, who does that leave to deal with the homeless issues? The police. We have horrible, horrible drug addiction issues. Nobody knows how to take care of those, so who does that leave it to? The police. The police are not equipped and were never set up to deal with stuff like that. Your average police force was not designed to handle organized crime. That's what the fucking FBI is for. They're not set up to deal with cybercrime. Again, the FBI is. And they're not set up to deal with sociological or psychological issues. We have social workers and psychologists for that. If somebody has a drug overdose, the first responder there should be a paramedic, not a cop. If there's a domestic violence issue or a mental health crisis going on, adding a gun into the mix is not the right way to de-escalate the situation. Bringing in a competent professional trained in how to de-escalate very stressful and difficult to manage situations will help. We need to take what is the realm of criminal and bring it down to the bare minimum of what needs to actually be considered that, which is taking people who are too dangerous away from society for their own sake and the sake of society. And we need to put a lot of investment and effort into fixing the root causes of why we have crime, reforming bullshit laws that just create black markets. We need to address rampant poverty and racism and urban decay and fix those issues so that the incentive to commit crime is lower. We need to improve education so that people can get jobs. We need to improve job opportunities, especially for minorities, because if somebody doesn't, can't get a job, what are they going to do when they're bored and have no money through legitimate sources? You got to eat. And if you get in with the wrong crowd, you're definitely going to be getting into some drug addiction issues and needing to support those habits. And why not just work for the people that 
are taking care of all of that. And we need the law enforcement system that is in place to take care of the entire community so that minority groups and insular communities don't have to rely on their own protection rackets because the civil police would take care of them. We can build a better system. It takes political will. It will take a lot of money. It will take the left growing a thick skin. And it will take the right softening their hearts a little bit. People keep saying that the world, that, that, that the old normal will not be back. And these protests have shown the old normal can't come back. We need a new normal that is better. And it is my hope that this energy, that this drive, that these ideas keep moving through the public consciousness and that we can find a new normal that is better. And on that note, uh, let's go ahead and move on to the interview. We are so close to and starting to move into a better new normal for LGBTQ people and trans people. We're finally starting to get get theirs, and they're starting to lose it. And so we have a, a really good discussion with Alice Ashton about um, being a trans service member and what that struggle is like right now for trans people in the U.S. Armed Forces. And the answer is right now it's not good. That new normal can be better for everyone. But we have to make it that way. And the best way to start is by changing our government and kicking out the asswipes who are fighting progress and who want to go back to the 1920s. All right. <clears throat> so, yep, let's move on to the interview. And we are now joined by Alice Ashton. Uh, Alice uh, has been a, a, she was a patron for a while for the podcast, so got to know her through some communication with that. That's, that was years ago. And I've been wanting to have you on the podcast for a long time, and it never got around to scheduling you until, until now. Um, so sorry about that. But uh, Alice was a, a, is in the process of retiring from the U.S. Navy um, is a, uh, trans person and a activist in a number of areas. Uh, so Alice, welcome to Atheist Nomads. Thanks for having me. I think the, the, the first area where I want to uh, get started with this is what's your, what's your basic story? Um, well, I grew up Mormon, um, Joined the military at 18. My dad was Air Force, so I went in the Air Force, got out of the Air Force after six years. And then a couple of years later, rejoined the Navy, 
finish 14 more years so I could get my 20-year retirement. Um, and about uh, 2016, I came out as soon as it was authorized. Uh, I came out as trans in the military. And since then, I've, I've been trying to be an activist for um, that particular group of people. Um, we could get more into that later, but uh, I don't have like an atheist origin story because it took, it wasn't like one thing that happened. It was just over time, I, I kind of floated more and more away from religion and towards non-belief. Um, yeah, and with, with, with certain denominations and Mormons would definitely be one of them. It's that's one where when you drift out, it's it's hard to move into some other form of religion. Yes, very much is. Um, and then, so in the military, I was an Arabic linguist, and uh, my job dealt with that, obviously. And that's a. a tough language specialty <laughs> yeah uh i wasn't necessarily like the best linguist or anything but it was a job that i i had pretty good um at first i had very good job satisfaction but as my politics went more and more to the left i i felt a lot less happy about it so mm. i'm glad to be retiring <laughs> yeah and especially if you're uh, dealing with the Arabic language, there's some definite uh, problematic areas in that, that part of the world. <laughs> and so I have my 20-year retirement. I'm going to have my military retirement for life, but I want to go back to school uh, with the GI Bill and become a journalist. Oh, nice. Um, so what was it, at, at what point did you know that you were, were trans? Um, that's always a rough question because I have memories of as young as seven of wondering why I wasn't born a girl. Um, not the correct terminology, but mm -hmm. at that age, you don't understand that. Right. Um. Especially growing up Mormon. Yes. Obviously, my my parents, my mom is, in particular, was very much, oh, well, boys don't wear dresses, boys don't do this or that. So um, kind of had to just put it away and not think about it. I didn't actually um, accept myself as trans until I was 35, about five years ago. Oh, wow. And was, was some of that the fact that it would have gotten you into a lot of trouble? Um, uh, part of it was the job. Part of it was family. Um, early on, it was religion as well. Um, when I got married, um, my, I, I had two marriages and first one fell apart pretty much right away, but the second one, uh, before we got married, I, I told her that I, I was interested in cross-dressing at the time. Um, 
and she tried to be supportive, but she couldn't couldn't deal with that. That was not something that she could support. And so, again, I just stopped exploring that part of my life, mm. that side of my person. And after um, the, the divorce went through in 2012, I started going, okay, I'm going to try and live for myself now, figure myself out. Um, through that exploration, I, I started accepting that I was trans. Okay. Yeah, I've, I've uh, helped a few family members uh, go through divorces, and it was uh, with my, my brother in particular. He'd been married for it was 18 years, and it was amazing to see how much and how quickly he changed after the divorce uh, process started as he tried to figure out who he was. Well, it's a, it's a big life-changing thing. You, yeah. Marriage is a good marriage. You shouldn't have to compromise too much of yourself, but you don't get divorced if you have a good marriage. Most people <laughs> right. are getting a divorce. It, um, it, you're just giving up too much of yourself to make the, the marriage worthwhile. Um, unfortunately, when... Um, just your who you are as a person and a gender is not acceptable in a in a marriage that it's kind of doomed to failure. <laughs> right. Yeah, that that definitely would be. Uh there are some people who transition after they get married and they stay together, but uh the the statistics are really bad on that. Yeah, and you you hear about those, but yeah, it's got to be a tiny number. Uh, okay, so then, so you got divorced in, in 2012, okay. then it took you about three years to figure out who you were, and then the next year, uh, the military said that was okay. Yeah, so it was, it was actually, when, when I started accepting myself in 2015, I was really scared about losing my job, getting fired. Um, so I started doing research online and found that they were, um, Obama and, um, SecDef Ashton Carter had put forth a study to see how trans people could be integrated into the military. Found out my job was safe at that point. Hmm. Uh, they weren't firing people for being trans then. Um, I stumbled upon a... Uh, Sparta, which is a group of trans service members. We have our own Facebook closed secret group. Um, and we are able to help each other um, on there, able to uh, network, as it were. Okay. Um, and that allowed me both connections that um, helped me figure out how to navigate the military bureaucracy um, safely, and also for me to help others in in turn. Mm-hmm. Well, and and just based on pure statistics, there probably aren't relatively all that many trans people in the military. Um, it, yeah, it depends on who you um, talk to. There's, and it, I've heard numbers anywhere from a few. 
like three to five thousand to uh, fifteen thousand, uh, according to a, a survey of veterans, and basically looking at how many veterans uh, identify as trans, uh, and then backfilling those numbers uh, to a statistical percentage of the military. Okay, so then most but, bases would have several. Most ships would probably have several. Yep, there were, there were about uh, 30 of them at the local base I'm at right now. Okay. Um, 30 that, trans people. That's a small group, but not an insignificant group by any means, especially considering that, you know, each and every one is a, a human being deserving of basic human rights. Imagine that. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so then prior to the rule changes, if it had been found out that you were trans, would you have gotten discharged? Yes, uh, originally, since I believe it was the, the 50s, um, being gay or trans would get you kicked out. After Don't Ask, Don't Tell was overturned, um, trans people still would be kicked out. It'd be a um, medical or a admin discharge. But when Obama decided to allow trans people to serve in the military and started that study, it took a year long for the study, but mm -hmm. um, during that time, that's when they said, you can't fire someone just because they're trans okay. at this point. Um, and then on June 30th, 2016, is when Ashton Carter made the announcement. And the next uh, business day is when I told everyone at, at my job that I was trans. <laughs> <laughs> and how'd that go over? Uh, my peers, I, I was universally supported by my peers. Uh, the older generation, the higher-ups, had a, a bit more of an issue with it, and I got a lot of pushback, but uh, once they saw it, I knew what my rights are, because we have good equal opportunity rules in the military. Mm -hmm. Once I figured out what my rights were and showed them that I know uh, what they can and can't do to me, uh, they pretty much left me left me be. All right. And then when I transferred... Uh, I was in England at the time, um, and then when I transferred to the States, that's when I was able to start moving along in the medical side, trying to get hormones and transition and everything, and my command was a lot more supportive. There hmm. was also, however, there was still a lot of uh, red tape and bureaucracy to get through uh, just to get hormones and everything else you might uh, need it for transition. Was it like typical military red tape and bureaucracy or worse? Um, I think typical bureaucracy and then add the fact that you're generally having to um, instruct the doctors and your chain of command on what the rules are. Ooh. They are doing everything they can to navigate rules that they don't understand because they're new and they haven't had to deal with this before. <laughs> right. It's it's worse, but not 
in my situation, it wasn't worse due to discrimination. It was just worse due to uh, people not knowing the rules. Yeah, ignorance. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and so con- conceivably, if everything, if Trump's repeal of Obama's allowing of, or Trump's rescinding of Obama allowing trans people openly serve <laughs> completely goes away, then it will still probably be a while until commanders across the entire U.S. military have experienced and dealt with this process and know how to navigate it, right? Correct. So it it would be a struggle for quite a while. Yeah, when when the tweets came out in July of 2017, through that uh, Sparta group I was talking about, Mm -hmm. we found a lot of people were being told that they were getting discharged or they tried to hold up a promotion, like all these things. And we had to get people, we had some of the higher ranking officers actually calling bases saying, no, you can't do that. That there's no policy yet. So <laughs> oh, man. it was, it was kind of interesting that uh, one base was like, Oh, well you can't get promoted because they're going to kick you out here shortly. And then they get a call from the Pentagon saying, uh, no, you're not. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, that and that must have been really confusing. It was, and then the actual policy didn't come out until the next year, and even that didn't have a timeline for when every, or that, that was when the study came out. The, I'm trying to remember the name of there have been several <laughs> was that mathis yeah. at that point yes it was mathis they call it the mathis study um that came out the following year in 20 early 2018 but things were actually not um put into effect until march 12th of uh, 2019, we got the new policy, and it said um, 30 days from the date here. So on April 12th, if you do not have a gender dysphoria diagnosis in your military medical record, you can no longer transition in the military. In fact, if you are uh, identify as trans, they could kick you out for being trans if they felt you could not. Um, perform your job in the gender you were assigned at birth. Wow. So uh, we lovingly call it uh, Don't Ask, Don't Tell 2.0. Uh-huh. <laughs> and during that month, uh, I was working with a, a lovely trans MD who uh, is a JAG officer. And we got uh, 15 people in under the wire to get their diagnoses in their record a process that for um reservists usually takes three months or so Mm. minimum and we got it all done in 30 days oh wow that was a rough month yeah yeah because you would have had people who were because i'm gonna guess that after you formally start 
the, the, the military process that it takes time to get a diagnosis? Um, you have to get a, for an active duty person, you need to get a, um, an appointment at a military um, behavioral health center and they have to put the diagnosis in your file. Usually they don't want to do that the first time they see you, but mm -hmm. because of the short timeline, they were pretty much, if, if you got the appointment, they'd see you, they'd put it in your record, you're good to go. Um, <laughs> but on the reserve side, Army reservists had to first go to a civilian a therapist and get a diagnosis. Then they have to go to a civilian doctor and get a transition plan put together. Those would have to go through their chain of command to the um, surgeon, the, the one person in charge of all the Army reservists uh, file, medical files. And that once the surgeon signed off saying this is in their record, then they were safe. But each step of that um, chain of command signing it, you have to remember these people at the lower levels, uh, their direct chain of command work mm -hmm. one week in a month. Mm -hmm. So they, they have two days that they see their um, commanding officer, they can get an appointment, get it signed, and then put up to their uh, superior and then Again, you have to wait. Because, uh, again, working one weekend a month. <laughs> yeah, you have to wait till the following uh, reserve days, generally, for the next level to act on. So that's why it takes three months minimum a lot of yeah. times. However, uh, we were able to call people off duty and get things pushed through. But, but even just the civilian doctor's appointments, uh, those can take months on their own. Yes. And if, if, if you're three, four months out, then you could have been completely screwed. Yes. Wow. Like I said, you had 30 days. So we, uh, we got, I think it was uh, six active duty and nine reservists in under the wire. Wow. All right. And then you shared with me a uh, news article that this is starting to roll back please clarify uh that the the navy is accepting or is is um, opening up on trans people a bit that that is kind of a misnomer there was a case of a naval officer who was suing uh to be allowed to serve as a trans person the court was about to put in an injunction where they mm. uh, would have to start allowing trans people to serve. So they allowed that one individual uh, in so that the case would go away and there'd be no injunction. Yep. Remove the active case and controversy and then it goes away. Yeah. Yes. So they're not, mm. it's not open back up. It's just a one time. Yeah. If you come out as trans and you don't have the, diagnosis before April 12th of last year, then you are putting your job on the line. Hmm. You will quite likely be discharged. Wow. 
Yeah, that sounds uh, sounds pretty shitty. Uh, especially since there was progress and that's been taken away and now you've got a uneven system where some people are, I guess for lack of a better term, grandfathered in yes. and the rest are la- left, uh, hung out to dry. Yes. But elections have consequences. Yes. <laughs> and this is one of them. And so every time I hear people talking about how well, Biden's no better than Trump, and I, I'm not going to vote for anyone, or I'm going to vote third party. It, this is why I'm like, no, marginalized groups, including grand service members, actually care about which side wins. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because you know, if 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 you look at a few single issues, Biden is no better than Trump. If you look at everything else, he is infinitely better people can vote however they want that's why we have a free election but not voting or voting third party is wasting a vote basically Mm -hmm. yeah and and, you know like if you live in a place like uh california or idaho your vote isn't really going to swing things but if you're in Michigan or Ohio or North Carolina, it absolutely could. And we have to, California is obviously always going, or most of the time going to be leaning left. However, Pennsylvania was thought to be a safe democratic state mm-hmm. until 2016. There are yeah. a lot of swing states that weren't before. So. Yeah. Oh, yeah, you never just take for granted that your state is going to go one way or the other. So. Yeah. Um, wow. So then, at present, are trans service members who got in under the wire, are they okay? Currently, they're allowed to continue serving, re-enlist, let, uh, get promoted, everything. Um, and continue their transition in the military. However, if Trump wins the next election and there's four more years, once the court cases are all settled, there's no um, guarantees that they will be allowed to continue serving at that point. Because mm. everything's still working its way through the courts. Once the court's finish all that they have no reason to allow the people who were grandfathered in to remain so my retirement came at a decent point for me right because if that ruling or that 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 policy when it came out if it had been stronger that if you have come out as trans you're going to be discharged you would have lost out on your retirement yes a a year out (laughs) There are um, protections for people who have over 18 years of service uh, so that they can't fire you right before you retire, but they're not universal. It's not I mean, it's not a 100%. They mm. couldn't fire me. <laughs> but, but even if you're 
at 17 years of service, you're, you're three years away from retirement. That's most people don't voluntarily leave at that point <laughs> for good reasons. Yes. That is correct. Now I'm trying to retire, go back to university of Maryland, get a journalism degree and go out working as a journalist in social justice, if at all possible. Oh, nice. I also was selected to be on the Foundation Beyond Belief board. We have started a um, giving to a charity called Poverty, Hunger, and Inequality. Um, and we're donating for a humanist response to get um, help those who are unemployed, underemployed, and um, have no food security. Okay, so that would help people who are who are already in trouble as well as those who are have found themselves now in trouble. Yes. And from what I've seen a lot of states it's there's people who applied for unemployment in March that are still not approved. Yeah, the the um because of the bottleneck of the paperwork, a lot of people still waiting to get approval. Mm-hmm. We also have the issue of some states are deciding to open back up, which means <laughs> they'll turn off the um, extended unemployment benefits. So if either yep. you go work, you have to find a job you can do during the pandemic or else you lose your unemployment benefits. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know that's definitely hitting people who were furloughed and are now getting uh, called back in. Foundation Bound Belief also has a, a disaster response uh, program. Is that that continuing? Yes. The disaster response has been put on hold due to the pandemic. We can't send out our response teams um, safely um, to uh, the areas that are affected by said disasters. Uh, so. We just have to give money to the people who are already there. Okay, so yeah, like you wouldn't want to be going to, say, sending volunteers to New York or Detroit to help with the pandemic, or to a hurricane, or excuse me, a tornado in Mississippi, where the outbreaks are pretty bad right now. (laughs) Correct. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, I'm glad the foundation is... uh, responding to that appropriately and then how does the the foundation uh you mentioned that the 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 program the the particular charity that funds for helping with food insecurity with the pandemic is going to um how does the foundation pick charities to work with so foundation beyond belief is a secular humanist organization um and most of, we do some direct work, but most of the work we do is as a pay-through charity. We find charities such as this um, poverty, hunger, inequality that are uh, already doing the work and then make sure we vet them to make sure the money's going where it should be, that they're not religious. There's no, well, you can have this cup of soup if you listen to our sermon or read this Bible. Um, no proselytizing involved and make sure that the, the work 
is getting done effectively. Once we fully vet the, the charities, then we, we give the money that we get to them. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, that would be... Yeah, and that, that, I'm sure that's a, a, an a more efficient way than trying to duplicate responses. Yes. Uh, and if somebody were to want to be able to and interested in, in helping with that, where would they go to? If you go to foundationbeyondbelief.org, you can find our website. And along the top, there are um, there's a button to donate. And you can just uh, go there. You can either donate one time or you can set up a monthly donation. All right. And with the the uh, the issues with the Trump administration's policies for trans service members, what could the average civilian do to help? Get out and vote. <laughs> That's nothing is going to change under the current administration uh, that will authorize trans people to serve in the military unless the court system, the Supreme Court decides it, which I don't have high hopes of, or um, we get a new president who can erase the current executive order. And with with what you've seen, the because like the, the Trump's arguments for reinstituting the ban on trans service members and just the general um, conservative talking points. Do any of those match up with reality? Um, since I'm still in the military until June 30th, I'm not going to give my opinions on right. Okay, in the chain of command up to the president, but uh, okay. Let me ask you. Let me ask you a different question. Uh, okay. Okay, so I I know I've seen in the the kind of the, the conservative talking points around trans service members. Um, that it's not good for unit cohesion. Um, have you seen anything with that? The chiefs of staff of all the services spoke to the Senate and said there were no problems with unit cohesion or mission readiness. The study done by the RAND Corporation showed no problems with service members being able to serve, study that they haven't officially said who uh, has written, but there's some evidence saying it was the, um, what is the name of, one of those uh, anti-LGBT groups. Oh. Focus on the family room. One of those okay. um, was uh, the one who wrote it. And then uh, at the direction of Pence, et cetera, and then it went in. No other study I've seen shows the outcomes that they claim in that study. Okay. That's as far as I'll go about that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and and it's the, the the most patently absurd one I've seen is that Men will transition just to get to to be able to take advantage of the lower uh, PT requirements. 
Yes. Um, even when trans people were allowed to serve and the people who've been grandfathered in, there are no um, non-binary identified individuals in the military who follow either the male regs or the female regs. And one of the main reasons is the PT tests. <laughs> um, you have to be on hormones already to get your gender marker changed and to do the other PT tests, you have to have your gender marker changed. So it took me 10 months to get on hormones and then another six months to get my gender marker changed. So the hormones already start affecting you before uh, you get the benefit of the lower scores. <laughs> so, yeah, completely absurd idea then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and from from what I've heard before, the, the hormones are rough in and of themselves and not yeah. something that you would do on a whim. Well, no, you, people are not going to uh, physically change their body if they don't identify as trans. Okay. It just doesn't make sense. Right. <laughs> All right. So then the arguments against trans people being able to openly serve in the military are absurd the studies are showing that it's not an issue. When it really comes down to it, though, isn't the vast majority of people in the military just people doing normal jobs? More or less? The, the infantry goes out and has guns on the ground. You have pilots, etc. But it's the vast majority of people are support personnel. We fix uh, vehicles, um, I listed the languages. There's a lot of people who support the war fighting effort, but sit at a desk. Yeah. What gender marker is on your record or whatever medical care you're going through is probably going to have minimal of any impact on your ability to translate Arabic language materials. Correct. Yeah. All right. So then, fingers crossed that everybody goes and votes, and we get a, <laughs> and that can be changed back. Hopefully. Well, Alice, uh, thank you very much for your time. Um, it's been a real pleasure talking to you finally. And uh, what do you have to plug that you'd like to send people to? Again, you can go to foundationbeyondbelief.org, donate to help people during this pandemic crisis we have and you can look at askintel.com it'll tell more about trans service members that's about it all right and you can find you can find me on facebook <laughs> all right all right well thank you very much all right well i hope you enjoyed the interview and i hope the rant before that wasn't too depressing. Um, we have two upgrading patrons. Samuel upped his pledge again. And uh, Freethinker215 has done an across the board to all of the shows that he supports. Uh, increases in patronage, patronage uh, for a few months through the, the pandemic. So 
Thank you, Freethinker, and thank you, Samuel. And in feedback from Rich in response to episode 357, uh, Dustin, your audio sounds great. Fascinating discussion with Dan Lombardo. Uh, the dams are economic losers should be publicized more widely. And no, Rich, I, I totally agree. I was, I was 100% pro-dam. I was 100% pro-dam until I heard Dan talking about it on Ask an Atheist, and it's taken me a while to get Dan on the show to talk about dams, and now I am anti-dam. And I think it's always important that we keep open-minded and question things, and it's it's always good to be able to make changes um, in, our, in our opinions. And it should not be surprising that something that was getting pushed so hard in the Great Depression and post-war years turns out to have been a bad idea. Uh, yeah. Fortunately, there are better ways to do hydroelectric power and just better ways to get power. So we should, we should definitely make a point of doing that. And from uh, Eugene on the uh, website, using the contact form, uh, he wrote, I sure hope Kylie saying bye-bye will become the standard show closer adorable. Uh, yes, I am going to work on, on getting the updating the outro. Uh, it's been the same outro for five years, and uh, I've, I've changed mics and processing a few times since then, and it's starting to sound really bad so i've recorded a new one it probably won't make it into this episode but hopefully we'll make it into the next one and i'm going to try to integrate in that bye-bye because yeah that was freaking cute so thank you for that and uh if you want to support the show you can find out how at atheistnomads.com slash donate if you want to contact us um you can use the contact form on the website at atheistnomads.com slash contact or use the SpeakPipe button to leave us a voice message. Or send us an email at contactatheistnomads.com. And until next week, remember, not all those who wander are lost. Thank you for listening to another episode of Atheist Nomads. You can find show notes and contact information at atheistnomads.com. Follow us on Twitter at Atheist Nomads. And like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash atheistnomads. Please subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcatcher of choice. And while you're there, feel free to leave us a review. Theme music is courtesy of Sturdy Fred. Until next time, this has been the Atheist Nomads.